I think that uh, one way to look at the um, uh, Trump presidency, of Donald Trump's uh, first term as president, is that it's been an object lesson in the limits to the power of the US presidency to affect the energy system in the country. Um, as you say, market forces have been very important in driving US energy. Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. My guest today is Ed Crooks, Vice Chair Americas for Wood Mackenzie, the international consultancy. Ed is based in New York and he covers all energy commodities, technologies and sectors, including the forces shaping the industry worldwide. He has a degree in politics, philosophy and economics from Oxford University. Today, we're gonna to be discussing what the November 3rd election might mean for the US energy sector. Welcome to Energy Talks, Ed. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Now, the first thing we're gonna talk about is what happened during the Trump presidency. And uh, I interviewed uh, a professor, Catherine Wolfram, uh, from University of Berkeley a few days ago, and she talked about the Trump effect, which essentially is that Trump really didn't have much of an effect on the energy sector. Uh, he didn't revive coal, uh, not responsible for the dramatic increase in shale oil and gas production because most of that is under state regulation. Uh, I think about 25% of American oil and gas production takes place on federal lands. That's all he had really uh, that he could regulate. Uh, didn't seem to have affected the deployment of wind, solar, or battery storage much. It really seems that markets and prices were far more important than, than federal policy under Donald Trump. What do you make of that? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I entirely agree with that argument. I think that uh, one way to look at the um, uh, Trump presidency of Donald Trump's uh, first term as president is that it's been an object lesson in the limits to the power of the US presidency to affect the energy system in the country. Um, as you say, market forces have been very important in driving US energy. Um, that's a lot to do with the US system. It is um, a capitalist free market system. It's a, a country where um, on the whole, businesses uh, can do what they want. They're allowed to expand and to grow, uh, to meet consumer demand. And that's what the energy industry has been doing. So in a sense, perhaps it shouldn't be entirely surprising that the president hasn't been able to have a big impact on that. Um, but it is interesting, I think, definitely to think about um, the things that Donald Trump wanted to do and that he's failed to do. And of course, the classic one being revive the coal industry. Um, Donald Trump talked about you know, bring back coal, going to create coal jobs and so on. Um, on the campaign trail, that was a very kind of key part of his appeal, particularly in some uh, swing states that he needed to win, but also just as sort of symbolic of the whole sort of making America great again agenda. And um, in office, um, not only has the coal industry not revived in the US, it's actually continued to go downhill at really quite a rate. I was just looking at the numbers just now, actually, and it is quite staggering that in 2017, coal-fired plants and gas-fired plants generated about the same amount of electricity in the US, that coal and gas roughly neck and neck as sources of power in the US. This year, um, gas is going to generate about twice as much electricity as coal. So um, it's still continued very steep uh, decline in the coal industry and coal-fired power 
in particular. And we hear a lot of stories from the US coal mining industry. One of the biggest US coal producers, Arch Coal, was saying only the other day, um, they are um, planning to cut their, they've already cut their production of thermal coal, that's the coal used in power plants. They've already cut that production very substantially. They're planning to cut it by another 50% over the next two or three years. And they're looking to sell those assets if they can find a way to do that because they want to, uh, to concentrate on what's called metallurgical or coking coal. That's the coal used in steel production. For that, there is still a good, healthy market. But in coal for power generation, that's really looking very sickly. One of the, the issues, obviously, that we've uh, everyone's been dealing with this year is the, the COVID pandemic. And so that means that the sort of um, the coal industry has been particularly badly hit this year. So if, as we hope, the economy rebounds a bit next year, we get a bit more power demand, we may see the coal industry pick up a bit. But even so, the direction of travel is very clear. The coal industry is heading downwards. And to be fair to Donald Trump, it's not that he hasn't tried to do anything. He's tried various things. He's um, deregulated the coal industry in various ways, lifted some of the uh, environmental uh, regulations that have burdened the coal industry. He's also looked at various ways of intervening in US electricity markets to try and put in place uh, mechanisms that would help coal-fired power generation. But nothing he's done clearly has been effective. The power of the market, in particular, competition from very cheap natural gas, has just um, outcompeted coal. Also, renewable uh, generation now increasingly very competitive with um, coal generation in lots of parts of the country. A lot of um, the US coal fired um, power plant stock is very old. Um, companies are thinking we have these. Uh, coal-fired plants coming towards the end of their lives. Do we really want to kind of keep them going for another five years, another 10 years, another 15 years at the point when they're quite economic and quite uneconomic? And they've been saying, no, we let's, let's just shut them down now. And so we've seen a, a wave of coal plants being closed across the United States and nothing the president has done has been able to stop that. So bottom line, um, the US president has certain amount of power to shape the energy system but not anything like absolute power and that's an issue that every u.s president is going to face yeah indeed that's the case and i remember prior to the the last election uh, obama's clean power plan was a fairly extensive set of regulations designed to you know accelerate the uh, getting America off coal. And the criticism of it at the time was it really wasn't needed because the combination of falling renewable prices and cheap gas would, would do the job. And I think that's actually kind of panned out the way it's worked. Yeah, indeed it has. No, that's exactly right. I mean, again, that's a really interesting story about the limits of presidential power and then the, the, the power of the market, if you like, the unlimited power of the market is that, because um, what happened with those regulations, um, uh, what happened to President Obama was he ended up getting uh, obstructed by the courts. I don't know if you remember the whole story, but um, basically states that wanted to hang on to their um, uh, coal-fired power generation, which would have been hit by these regulations, um, brought a court case against uh, the Obama administration that case started going through the courts and the Supreme Court very early on um, put what they call a stay on the regulations and said that the administration could not enforce those regulations. 
and that stay lasted until after the election when President Trump came in and just said, we're going to forget the whole thing, we're going to get, get rid of those Obama regulations, we've got our own, which are you know, basically much more uh, kind of laissez-faire and would have allowed um, coal-fired generation to continue. But while all that was going on, as you say, we had this competition from very cheap gas, and the issue uh, there has been, you know, the conclusion of that has been that actually the coal industry in the US has declined faster than it was expected to do had the regulations taken place. It's actually, you know, uh, it has gone down below the level that people thought it would go down to if the Obama administration had had its way and been able to put that clean power plan into effect. Uh, and it's done that solely because of market forces, because of competition from cheap gas and also from cheap renewable energy. Now let's talk about renewables and this will maybe be a nice segue into what a Biden presidency might be for the energy sector because the not only did uh, the Trump years see really cheap natural gas but it was really the critical four years for wind and solar and now we see battery storage uh, being becoming competitive with with natural gas and in fact becoming the cheapest form of power generation and so there have been you know a number of uh, forces coalescing i guess uh that were you know basically mean the death of coal uh, quicker than we had anticipated biden wants to accelerate that he's said that he's going to bring in two trillion dollars over four years on a green power plan or green uh, climate plan and a lot of that is going to be around uh, renewable energy. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right to say that. I think the, the, the key thing about uh, Biden's plan for renewable energy is it is very, very ambitious. And the, the sort of the, the political history of this is kind of interesting, really. And in um, when Biden started off um, uh, attempting to secure the Democratic nomination to be their presidential candidate, um, he had um, a climate and energy plan that was quite ambitious in lots of ways, but was generally sort of towards the more moderate, less radical end uh, of the spectrum compared to some of his um, uh, rivals in that race, compared to Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, some of the others. After Joe Biden secured the nomination, uh, there was what they called uh, a unity task force, or the unity task forces, which tries to bring together a kind of a range of views from across the Democratic Party to help in policy formation to put together a, um, a program for Joe Biden. And um, the energy unity task force uh, was chaired, co-chaired by John Kerry, you know, um, Senator, and uh, former Senator, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the um, very sort of prominent um, member of the House of Representatives, who's been one of the great campaigners for um, radical climate action, a strong advocate of the Green New Deal, with, um, put forward the Green New Deal legislation in Congress and so on. And this task force came up with various different uh, ideas for Joe Biden's program, including the, the, the one that I'm about to talk about, which is the really critical one, which is the pledge to make the US electricity sector carbon free by 2035. So, as I said, that is not something Joe Biden we talked about previously. Now it is part of his program. Now, that is an enormously ambitious objective. When you think that today gas generates 
give or take about 40% of US electricity. Coal is maybe another 20%. Um, so 60% of US power in total is generated by some kind of fossil fuel, some kind of you know, carbon generation. You're talking about replacing all of that within 15 years. And I mean, to be honest, you know, we've looked at how it could be done. It's not absolutely impossible. <laughs> never say never, right? I mean, but, you know, there are always um, uh, things you can do, but it's very, very, very demanding. It would mean, I mean, the modeling we've done says you'd roughly, you'd need to increase the wind and solar generation in the US sevenfold from what it is now you would need also an enormous investment in battery storage, you'd need a huge amount of offshore wind, you'd probably need quite a lot of them carbon capture and storage, you'd need to keep running some of those gas-fired plants, maybe in some of the coal plants, but with uh, carbon capture fitted because there are parts of the US, particularly in the Northeast, uh, to an extent the Northwest as well, where you just don't get enough uh, wind and solar energy during the uh, winter months to be able to provide all, all the energy you need. And um, there is also probably a need for a, a, a lot more transmission to be built. And again, you're going to need to kind of connect up much more of the US with a grid to enable the power to be brought from the places where it's generated. For instance, the plains and you know, the area where there's a lot of space and scope for um, more wind, uh, you know, more, more wind farms to be built and the places where most of the demand for electricity is, which is obviously you know, up and down the coasts and, and where the main centres of population are. So, as I say, it's not undoable, but it's very, very difficult and it's quite hard really to see the path from here to there. And I think when you think about sort of the challenges that, that a Biden administration would face and how difficult it's going to be for Joe Biden to achieve what he wants, that is going to be the number one challenge that he faces is uh, achieving that very ambitious goal for the electricity system. On that note, and this is an issue that is being debated in Canada, and I've done some of the, the reporting around it, and that is uh, in Canada, I'll give you, use that as an example, the climate policy of the federal government and a number of the provincial governments is geared to reducing GHG emissions by electrifying the economy. So we're talking buildings, we're talking transportation, we're talking industry. And the estimates for British Columbia, where I live, are that that could, by 2040, require double the amount of power uh, generation that we currently have now. In your modeling for the U.S., when you're looking at what Biden wants to do, have you taken into account electrification of, those, of, of the economy, basically, and how much power that would need? Yeah, no, so that's a really good point. Um, in terms of that 2035 objective, that includes a bit of extra electricity demand. For instance, we're seeing um, electric vehicles starting to come in in quite a significant way. They're still a minority of car sales and, and a, quite a small minority of um, the total car fleet, even by the early 2030s. Um, that then, if you like, is the second leg. And by then, obviously, we are kind of way beyond a Biden presidency and we're kind of, this is issues for subsequent presidents. But as you say, imagine even if you did get the entire electricity system carbon-free by 2035, 
electricity is only um, a minority of the total energy use of a country, the United States, any other country. Um, transport is uh, number one uh, usage and, and heat, you know, domestic heat, industrial heat, heat for buildings, all those kind of things um, is also very significant. And so then the subsequent objective that Joe Biden's got, which is uh, he wants to put the US on a course for the entire economy to have net zero carbon emissions by 2050, um, that then is going to mean addressing transport, addressing heat. That, as you say, basically is going to mean um, electrification, all the routes to, or most of the routes that we see to decarbonization uh, for transport and for heat involve electric vehicles, electric heating. Some things probably you can do, for instance, the use of hydrogen um, to an extent for transport, definitely for heating and industrial uses. Um, that probably will be an alternative to electrification in some cases. Um, but anyway, certainly there's going to be a lot more electrification. And that then puts that extra huge burden on the electricity system, which as you say, you've already had that one huge revolution just to get what you've got at the moment um, carbon-free, then you have that huge extra demand on the electricity system to cover um, other uses. Uh, and so that, again, just makes that um, task all the more demanding and all the more difficult given the kind of technological options that we've got at the moment, which realistically on that kind of timetable, that's what you're working with. You can sort of, it would be lovely if we did have some sort of magic new thing, nuclear fusion or whatever it might be, um, that, that you could suddenly apply um, to the energy system to make a huge difference. But when you're thinking about those kind of timescales of 15, 20, 25 years, it's not going to be anything brand new coming that's going to kind of appear out of a lab and get to scale in that time. You've, you've really got to work with what you've got. Now, we're recording this podcast on Friday, October 23rd, and last night was the second debate between President Trump and, and uh, Joe Biden. And Biden committed to phase out oil, which I found was very interesting because what he, in his the context of his comments, he talked about federal oil subsidies, not a plan to actually phase out oil. But my question for you is, given the explosion, the shale gale, as it's, it's often called, so, you know, the explosion in, in shale uh, oil and gas production, what might a Biden presidency mean for that industry? I think the very important context for um, Biden's comments, which were a little bit kind of off the cuff in, in quite a heated exchange with uh, President Trump during the debate, um, the context for his remarks about wanting a transition away from oil is that he sees that as being a long-term process. Now, I don't know if you saw sort of actually at the airport as he was flying home or, or to wherever to, to his next stop, after the debate, he uh, Biden was sort of um, doorstep by some reporters. They asked the question, you know, what is this about transitional oil? He said, look, I am not talking about banning fossil fuels tomorrow. I understand that's impossible. He said fossil fuels are going to be with us, and this was his quote, for a long, a long time, a very long time to come. So in other words, you know, his point being, which I think would be one that's very widely shared, and I think it's something definitely that, that we would agree with, and you'd find a lot of other people that would, uh, who would say um, there is going to be 
a transition away from oil over time. Um, and driven by a couple of things, you know, one, concern about the climate and the need to reduce um, greenhouse gas emissions, two, just by technological progress and by various alternatives to oil getting increasingly um, low cost uh, electric vehicles of transportation and so on, starting to kind of uh, take a chunk out of oil demand. Um, but getting rid of oil completely is not a, a years long process, it's a decades long process and it is clearly going to be um, again something to, that goes way beyond the end of a Biden administration um, for the US um, to, to get away from oil uh, or to get away from oil completely although it is certainly possible the demand for oil could be reduced. So that that's the kind of the overarching context and that kind of vision of the world that Joe Biden's talking about. When you then look at what his policy platform actually says, and in practical terms, what does it mean? What might he try and do as president in terms of affecting oil supply and demand? None of it really seems to be that impactful. You know, um, there will there are certainly going to be changes, and they will be um, potentially significant over time. But the kind of things he's talking about, and one of the things, for instance, he says is he wants an end to new leasing on federal lands for oil and gas development. That, uh, or federal lands and waters, because uh, that's an important additional point. Um, an end to new leasing on federal lands essentially is irrelevant. Um, but we think basically it's going to make no difference at all to US oil and gas production because uh, a lot of production is on private land or it's on federal land that's already been leased. The kind of the US oil industry does not need new land to be leased from the federal government in order to be able to grow production. Offshore, it's a bit more significant, the role of, of the US government in kind of leasing areas for offshore exploration and development. That is quite a big issue, but because of the kind of the long lead times in the offshore business where it can be easily 10 years from trying to find some oil exploring an area to actually uh, getting production on stream uh that you don't really see much impact from that at all even probably within the 2020s that's more of a kind of 2030s kind of thing when you might see a serious impact to us oil production from um, ending leasing of, of federal waters. So um, although a lot of the talk sounds quite dramatic and the rhetoric is quite sort of um, bold in terms of addressing the problem, the actual concrete policy measures that lie behind that probably are, are not so uh, dramatic and not so ambitious. And I think I would draw a contrast really between what we were just talking about in terms of the electricity sector, where I do think what um, Biden is committed to is very radical, very ambitious, and what he's talking about for oil and gas, which is really not so much. It will definitely put pressure on the US oil and gas industry. The US oil and ga gas industry will find life more difficult than it would under a second term for Donald Trump. You will not see the industry being able to grow as freely as it might have been able to grow under Donald Trump, but um, it's not going to go away, it's not going to disappear, it will still continue to be um, a healthy industry subject to all the, the pressures that it faces during the market forces and everything, all the other things the industry has to worry about, but um, you know, 
a Joe Biden administration would not, on the basis of his um, stated policies, uh, it would not kill the oil and gas industry in the US. Let's talk about a second term for Donald Trump. Can we expect more of the same, which is lots of rhetoric, nothing much changes except what's driven by the market and prices and consumers? Or might we expect something different in the second term than we saw in the first term? I don't really think we expect anything uh, very different if we do get a second term of Donald Trump. I think um, the president hasn't really said much about what his second term agenda might be in general and, and not, not for energy, certainly in particular. I think the thing that a lot of people uh, in the energy industry who are supporting uh, President Trump and would like to see him get a second term is I think a lot of the, something that a lot of them would say is, um, the thing is, he's not going to put further obstacles in our path. He is, um, you know, that's that sort of hands off. They say fair approach. Let the industry get on with it. That's something that people like, and they would they would contrast that then with what they could expect from a Biden administration, which would be more obstacles and more difficulties being raised. And so, sort of, um, if you choose not to do anything, you're still doing something. If you see what I mean, that that's still um, uh, that that's still significant and that will be an important feature of a second Trump administration if there is one. I think um, we'll see little bits more of deregulation here and there. We'll, we'll see a continued attempt to try and try and chip away at environment, environmental regulation in order to help the oil, gas and coal industries. I think a lot of the big things have already been addressed in his first term though in terms of things like um, um, rules on methane leakage and flaring and, and uh, some of the things that the Obama administration were trying to do in terms of that, the clean power plan um, that, that Obama had that uh, we were talking about earlier. So don't expect anything radical. Do expect um, a bit more of a push in the same direction, just trying to kind of be hands off the fossil fuel industries, helping them grow, leaving them alone to grow. One thing to watch, I think, will be the Supreme Court. That's going to be an interesting uh, factor in all this. So we're seeing um, Amy Coney Barrett, the new um, nominated judge to, to fill the current vacancy on the Supreme Court left by passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She is going to be confirmed pretty soon. It looks like there's no reason why she won't be. Um, that appointment will then tip the balance of the court quite significantly. That'll essentially mean there are six conservative justices on the court and only three liberals. And um, it may well be we'll see some quite important sort of environmental and regulatory cases come before the court, which then, given that balance on the court, are likely to be decided in favour of the industry, in favour of... Uh, oil and gas producers. And so that's something which may then sort of lock in a beneficial legal framework for some time to come. And then even after President Trump's out of office, you may see um, sort of, you know, the effects of that um, prolonged for, for many years to come. So that's definitely going to be something to watch. One industry is worth noting, though, one part of the energy industry that will almost certainly not benefit from a Donald Trump presidency is offshore wind. That's something which um, uh, Democrats in general are very keen on. Um, Democratic states up and down the east coast of the US have been um, seeking to develop very significant offshore wind industries. There's a lot of excitement about potential for investment 
job creation, building a whole new industry there. The uh, federal government under the Trump administration has been sort of dragging its feet on permitting, kind of slow walking the whole process of getting offshore wind going. Um, it's already got to the point where some investors um, and would-be investors in the US offshore wind have been raising concerns about it and saying that this could be a potentially serious problem in terms of them actually making the commitment to spend the billions of dollars that they need to spend. President Trump, of course, famously has very well-known views on wind power. He, uh, he's very uh, strongly opposed to it. And there was something which came out in, in the debate, as you say, which we were watching last night. We talked about um, the problems of wind power, not least um, the turbines killing birds. And um, so that's something definitely to watch for. And that's one industry I think that will be very nervous about the possibility of a second term for Donald Trump is the offshore wind industry, because I think uh, his administration, um, if he gets that second term, could be very bad for them. Ed, thank you very much for this fascinating insight into what has happened, what could happen, and under both Biden and Trump, depending on who wins on November 3rd. So thank you very much for this, and we will look forward to having you forward or having you uh, on future Energy Talk podcasts. Thanks very much. It's been great talking to you. Thanks for having me on.